One of the most testing years for humanity, 2020 ended with some relief that we have a vaccine for COVID-19. But the pandemic is not over yet. New strains of the coronavirus have spread across the globe as we wait for vaccine distribution, particularly to those who need it the most. How effective are these vaccines? Which vaccine is better? And how long will it take for them to reach us? You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Sohail Akram. And this week, we're looking at whether 2021 is the year we can return to normal. There are dozens of COVID-19 vaccines in development, but only a handful have been approved for use. Dr. Jeremy S. Rossman, Honorary Senior Lecturer in Virology at the University of Kent, gave us a rundown. Worldwide, there are almost 70 different vaccines in various stages of development and clinical trials, but there are only a very few vaccines that are currently being used. So we've all heard of the the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine, which is an mRNA vaccine that's been licensed in multiple countries. We have the Moderna vaccine, which is also an mRNA vaccine that's also received approval. We have the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Now, this is an adenovirus vectored vaccine, so a little bit different type of vaccine, and that's the UK vaccine that's also in use. In Russia, we have another adenovirus vectored vaccine. This is the Sputnik vaccine that's also being used in Russia. And then in China, we have an inactivated vaccine that's also being used. And in India, very recently, they have an inactivated vaccine that was just approved for use. The vaccines that have received approval so far have come about using different methods. The Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, the Chinese Sinopharm and Sinovac vaccines, and India's homegrown co-vaccin are built on a rather time-tested concept of using an inactive virus. This involves taking the virus and rendering it harmless to the human body while making sure it still causes an immune response in people so their bodies can be protected in the future if it's exposed to an active form of the disease. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine both use mRNA technology. This is new and has never been used before. Dr. Jeremy explains. Now, mRNA vaccines are interesting because they actually remove the virus from the equation. What they do is they basically trick your own cells into making one virus protein that your immune system can then recognize and respond to. So this completely takes the virus out of the situation, which tends to make it a little bit safer, but it's also your body is producing that viral protein, which allows you to have a much stronger response to it. So you tend to develop very robust immune responses, which is exactly what you want. So it's sort of a way of circumventing what the virus does, and using what your body does naturally. Both mRNA vaccines have reported very high efficacy rates. Pfizer-BioNTech at 95% and Moderna at 94.1%. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine has a 70% efficacy rating, and yet it leads the way in terms of global sales so far. Dr. Jeremy explains why the AstraZeneca vaccine is an appealing candidate. The selling of the doses was not after we knew the efficacy. So this started a long time ago. And this is based on two really important factors and two 
very positive attributes of the, the Oxford vaccine. First of all, that this vaccine can be stored at warmer temperatures, and that makes the distribution internationally much easier. This is in contrast to the, the extreme version, which is the, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine that requires minus 80 degrees Celsius storage temperatures, which is incredibly difficult for many countries to be able to do. So it's the storage temperature, but it's also the fact that the doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine are far cheaper than the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. So this allows for a lot of countries to buy higher numbers of doses than they would be able to with other vaccine technologies. So this is all before we learn the differences in efficacy. But it's important to note that even the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine with the lower efficacy is still an incredibly effective vaccine. So, you know, if that had been the best and the highest efficacy that we had out of any vaccine, I think people around the world would have been pretty pleased. It's just that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines had such high efficacy that now the Oxford seems a little bit low, but it's actually still a pretty good vaccine. The focus on efficacy is obviously very important. But what does efficacy mean? Efficacy rates are one of the main purposes of phase 3 trials. In these trials, vaccines are given to a large group of people, and then the results are compared to a control group. The control group is usually a group that has been given a placebo. To put it simply, a 95% efficacy means that if 100 people in the control group got sick with the virus, only 5 people in the trial got sick who had been given the vaccine. Although all of the approved vaccines have high success rates, there's still an issue of vaccine hesitancy. Dr. Sema Sagar is the founder and CEO of Sergo Foundation, a nonprofit organization that solves health and social problems using data and technology. So we're seeing vaccine hesitancy across the world at varying levels, but really what's emerging are three main reasons why people express hesitancy. One of those reasons is a lack of trust in the decision makers, in politicians, in the process. A second reason that's being expressed is really a concern um, for the side effects of the COVID vaccine. And a third um, concern that's being expressed is that really this vaccine is very new and the process has been really fast. And so really not appreciating that um, you know, the process has gone through a, a, a diligent, um, you know, evaluation process. So these are the three main reasons that are really emerging across the world at different degrees, depending on the country. Vaccine hesitancy is a serious concern for public policymakers, but it's important to differentiate between this and the anti-vax movement, according to Dr. Sema. The anti-vax movement is a very, you know, historic and, and strong, but albeit a small perhaps growing um, segment of the population. But these are people that are really have a very strong um, negative connotation towards vaccines. So these are people that do not believe in vaccines, perhaps even believe vaccines are harmful, and therefore do not vaccinate themselves or their children um, to any of the vaccine regimens that we normally all go through. The vaccine hesitancy group is, is a slightly different group. These are people that are really hesitant to, in this context, in getting the COVID vaccine. So these are not necessarily people that don't believe in vaccines or have 
not gotten their children vaccinated, but are just really concerned and are kind of in the on the fence of whether they want to get a COVID vaccine. So I think it's really important to differentiate between these two groups because the anti-vaxxer group is a smaller, it ranges anywhere from one, one in 20 to one to 10 people in the population, depending on the country you look at. Whereas the hesitancy group is, is really a more broader, um, a, a grayer segment of the population and really are concerned for different reasons for not wanting to get a vaccine. A healthier tomorrow that people are hoping for may be significantly hindered by some people's refusal to take a vaccine, something which will also delay reaching the necessary herd immunity against the virus. Dr. Sema says 70% is the golden number for herd immunity, that critical point when the vast majority of people are immune to the effects of the virus, and so the virus is significantly less able to pass around the population. We achieve herd immunity by having a substantial number of people in that community vaccinated. Um, And it really depends on the efficacy of the vaccine. But we anticipate for the COVID vaccine, we need anywhere around 70%. But recently, some modelers are saying, actually, we may need even higher percentage of the population to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. But the idea is that really we have sufficient people in the population vaccinated so that we really break the transmission chain of the coronavirus. But if we never reach herd immunity, what we're going to be seeing is perhaps localized outbreaks of COVID, which we're going to have to address either with shutdowns or with more stringent policies or you know, require people to take on more stringent behaviors. So we're just going to be kind of in this continuous process of trying to tackle this pandemic and using the different tools that we have. To address people's fears around the new vaccines, Dr. Jeremy says it's important to examine the research. This is a new way of making vaccines, but that doesn't, just because it's new, doesn't make it unsafe. You know, in, in contrast, these inactivated vaccines are ones that we've had for a very, very long time. One of the sort of earliest forms of vaccination was these inactivated vaccines. But the mRNA ones, this is very new. But we also have a huge amount of information about them. We have a lot of very good data on them. We understand well how they work. We understand well on their their safety. And yes, we don't have that long-term track record to know how well and how safe these vaccines perform over a span of years. But the data so far looks extraordinarily positive. And in contrast to some other types of vaccines, the more historical types that we're all used to and people have less concerns about, the data for the mRNA vaccines looks like they might actually be safer and they definitely look more effective. So, you know, we have to really look at the data. I know people have a lot of concerns, but we really need to make our decisions based on the data because just because it's an old technology doesn't necessarily mean it's any more safe. So it's it's all about looking at each individual vaccine and what has the data shown us. Back in May 2019, we spoke to Dr. Jeremy about the potential time frame for a coronavirus vaccine. At that point, he had said that a vaccine would reasonably take at least a year. So what has changed? So the vaccine, both manufacturing, clinical trials and approval, all went a little bit faster than anybody was really anticipating. But part of the reason why it went faster was because, unfortunately, 
there are so many cases of COVID-19 around the world. And part of the reason why most clinical trials take a really long time to progress to the point where a vaccine or other pharmaceutical can be approved is you're waiting for enough cases in the study population to be able to accurately assess things like efficacy and safety. Unfortunately, in the context of the pandemic, there have been so many cases of COVID-19 that we were able to get the data that was needed for the vaccines much faster than anybody really expected because of the high case numbers. So it wasn't rushed or really expedited in this context. It was just that there are so many cases that we were able to get the data faster. Regardless of vaccine hesitancy, there are many that are ready and in need of inoculation. But the next question is how to distribute and vaccinate the whole population quickly and efficiently. Distribution is a challenge for multiple reasons. The World Health Organization is running the COVAX program that aims to deliver doses of the vaccine to the most vulnerable people in the world, regardless of wealth. But there are problems with distribution in even the world's most wealthy countries. Sergo Foundation, Dr. Sema's organization, was involved in making a tool that would help the U.S. plan for the distribution of the vaccine. She elaborates. I think an important question in the vaccine allocation is who gets priority and what does the phasing look like, right? We know that we don't have sufficient vaccines to vaccinate everyone at the same time. And so therefore, we have to make very um, informed and, you know, we have to make decisions around what are those prioritization schedules. So who gets it first, who gets it second, third, etc. Different countries are developing their own priority schedules. I think perhaps one place where almost everyone agrees is that, you know, one of the key first priority groups are healthcare workers. Um, because they are increasingly exposed, also they are at risk of transmitting to others, but also because they're so essential to our to the COVID response. But then after that, you know, there's questions, okay, so is it going to be the elderly people or people living in long-term facilities or actually first responders? So so when is that we need to really um, think about the prioritization? A challenge that's going to emerge is really our ability to ramp up production fast enough, um, you know, to deliver this vaccine fast enough to communities. Um, so that's another challenge. And the third challenge is really going to be the rollout, the actual physical rollout of these vaccines in communities. It's really a huge endeavor that I, I think a lot of people may not appreciate all the pieces that need to be perfectly come together to, to deliver this, all the way from the supply chain infrastructure to actually the workforce, you know, the army of vaccinators that I mentioned about, the coordination of the delivery, the data systems that need to be in place, um, the actual outlets. And so this is probably the biggest challenge that the world has faced in history and from a, from a global health and public health perspective. So I think there's so much we need to solve for in the next, um, you know, few months to six months to a year, uh, and different countries are going to be able to solve for these in, you know, at different rates and in different ways. And the UK, which entered its third full lockdown on January the 4th, announced at the end of December that it would delay second doses of the vaccine in favour of better distribution for the first dose. Dr. Jeremy explains why. The UK has made some very interesting policy decisions about the vaccine very recently. And this is both interesting and potentially a little bit concerning. So the reason why the UK has been approaching saying, maybe we use the vaccine a little bit differently is because 
the cases in the UK have been increasing so rapidly and so dramatically recently. Partly that's the new variant, but partly it's been relaxing restrictions. And so we've just seen increasing cases and tremendous burden on the national health system. So they they needed to do something immediately. And of course, now they're in a lockdown. So that should help stem this tide. But they had this idea that the dose, the first dose of the vaccines do tend to provide some level of protection. It's not as effective. So they said, let's look at maybe trying to get as many people vaccinated one time instead of saying, let's make sure we have the regiment for vaccination. And this does make sense in a really critical sort of catastrophe response level. The issue is what then happens afterwards? Because if you go too long between the two doses of the vaccine, we don't know what's going to happen. The second dose might be lower in effectiveness. You might predispose people to have low levels of infection that might allow the virus to mutate more, and you might select for more resistant variants. There's a lot of concerns here. And this is, this is really critical because clinical trials are designed to test a specific vaccine at a specific dose at a specific time. If you start to deviate from that without the clinical trial data to support it, we don't really know what's going to happen. I don't think that that's a huge risk, but it is a concern. And this is why many countries like the US have said, no, we're going to stick to the clinical trial evaluated two dose schedule because we know that works and we know that's going to be safe. Efficacy rates of 70 to 95% are exceptional, but the logistical issues are proving to be challenging. And while we're being told many times that this situation is unprecedented, Dr. Sema feels we can learn from other examples. The vaccine rollout is going to be a challenge in itself. And we were seeing already the slow rollout of these vaccines in countries like the U.S. and the U.K., slower than expected. And I think one of the things that people don't really understand is to being able to roll out this vaccine very efficiently. It's not only having available vaccines, but it's really about having the systems and processes in place. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from vaccination campaigns that are being rolled out in Africa and Asia. And I think we need to really tap into And So making sure that we're using the channels that are closest to people, we are actually having a huge workforce of people that are almost like an army of vaccinators around the world. And obviously then making sure that the messages are being targeted and, and delivered to people at the right time by the right messengers, you know, at the right place. And so taking, again, that targeted approach of messaging around COVID vaccines. Although the production of billions of vaccine doses in under a year is a reason for optimism, the cost per dose, the efficacy of each vaccine, the temperatures that are needed to keep them effective, and the logistics of vaccinating the whole world means we have a long road ahead to reach herd immunity. In the meantime, Dr. Jeremy says we need to be cautious. The answer is that, yes, unfortunately, we are still recommending people take precautions. And that's because, first of all, the vaccines are not 100% perfect. So there's always a small risk of still getting infected. And so you want to be careful, especially in areas that have very high virus transmission rates. But the critical part is that we don't know how effective the vaccines are at stopping asymptomatic spread of the virus. 
And that's critical because it doesn't matter quite as much for you getting infected if you don't have any symptoms and you recover perfectly. But if you can contribute to spreading the virus, then making sure that you're wearing masks and social distancing is critically important. And so those studies are ongoing to determine whether or not the vaccines also work for asymptomatic spread. But for right now, we don't know. And so the recommendations are to err on the side of caution and to still wear masks, to still practice social distancing. You can have a little bit of more personal confidence in your own safety, but to still use those precautions to protect everybody else around you. Thanks this week to Dr. Jeremy Rossman and Dr. Seema Segar. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Sohil Akram. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe by clicking the subscribe button in your favorite podcasting app. And if you have time, please leave a review. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan.